Hello, and welcome to episode 65 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for spending time with me and my guests today. Last week was the biggest week in the history of the podcast. I really appreciate the support. Always feel free to reach out with questions and suggestions. Today's episode is Big Changes and High Demand in MedTech Recruiting with Paula Rutledge and Chris Miklo of Legacy MedSearch based in Orlando, Florida. Over 30 years ago, Paula founded Legacy MedSearch and has turned it into one of the most highly sought-after MedTech search firms in the United States of America. Note, they do have numerous international clients. With Paula and Chris's help, we will explore the big changes taking place in recruiting, whether they are hiring a sales force or they are helping an emerging growth company fill out its C-suite and or board of directors. Here is a hint regarding the big changes. Some C-suite positions are being filled entirely virtually. That's right, with no face-to-face interview. And it's a candidate's market right now. Paula and Chris will explain why and what that means to candidates and employers. Are you prepared for this new environment? They offer great advice and resources. Regardless of your functional position in MedTech, you will find this very informative and helpful. As in the past couple podcasts, you may hear me refer to a couple members of the MedTech Leaders community asking questions in the chat. If you want to learn more about MedTech Leaders, go to medtechleaders.net. It's a professional community with over 100 members from over 18 countries. Again, medtechleaders.net. If you get value out of this podcast, please consider giving it a rating on your podcast provider, sharing it with a friend or colleague, and or subscribing. And remember, it's really easy to share a podcast because there's a link on your podcast provider. During this interview, you will also hear Paula refer to numerous resources they have for candidates and employers. I will have links to these specific pages and one of the PDFs in the show notes. Now it is time to sit down with Paula and Chris to have them paint this new landscape in MedTech Executive and Sales Recruiting. Paula and Chris, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. Really terrific to have you here today. You're the first major, I guess I would say, broad-based executive recruiter uh, company that I've interviewed for this podcast. I've wow, interviewed, that's an honor. Yeah, I've, I've interviewed a, another gentleman that has more of a sales, organi- a sales um, recruiting organization. They do a great job, but you're really the first people that do broad-based, all-across-functions type of executive uh, recruiting, which I think is a special kind of skill in a special kind of reputation to build. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. You're welcome. Paula, I'll start with you. And why don't you just 
tell me what your role is or tell the, the listeners what your role is and a little bit about legacy med search. And then I'd like Chris also to talk about his role and his experience there. Sure. Again, thanks for having us. So uh, Legacy Med Search was founded in 2005. Prior to that, I spent 20-something years working for Johnson & Johnson, for Synthes, then acquired by Johnson & Johnson, uh, then for a company acquired by Zimmer, Spinetech, and finally for GE on the navigation side. So I spent 20-plus years really being prepared to open up Legacy Med Search, which is a retained recruiting company. I headed it out of uh, Orlando, Florida. Uh, and I think, Ted, our secret sauce is the incredible people that work for us. So Chris has been with me 10 years. Our average tenure at Legacy Med Search is approaching nine years, which is pretty long in recruiting terms. Uh, so we've got a bunch of folks who have practiced expertise in different clinical areas. Chris and I travel quite a bit in an average no non-COVID year. We'll go to about 30 conferences this year, significantly less. But I think our, our secret sauce is the incredible people uh, and the amount of time we've been in business. Okay. Chris, a little bit about yourself and what sure. you did prior to joining uh, Legacy. Well, prior to joining Legacy, I was in sales, but uh, it's really less relevant to a lot of what we're doing right now. Uh, over the last about 10 years, I've been with Paula and, and uh, Hyper Specialized as a uh, um, you know, a vice president or second in command as we uh, as we look to work with our clients. And, and I'm a little bit more on the execution piece um, as opposed to some of the broad-based strategic options uh, when we uh, when we look at our clients' needs and, and overarching strategies. So I would say we both operate in the day-to-day. -day and within that, we are most of the first contacts with our clients in assessing, you know, assessing needs and and really delving into uh, solving complex business challenges to uh, to bring in the talent. So a little bit more execution and a little bit of strategy, but uh, a lot of travel. <laughs> okay. And I have to, going back to you, Paul, I do have to ask, what was it like in those first couple of years when you started, when you decided, I'm going to be a recruiter? I mean, what made you decide? And what was it like those first couple of years? Because that's very entrepreneurial. Yeah, it was terrifying, to tell you the truth. Some days still is. Uh, but it was, I knew I wanted to leverage all the uh, the clinical information and the, you know, the relationships that I had prior. Uh, it just made sense for me at that time in my life. I was traveling five days a week for a GE selling navigation equipment, and that wasn't working with my, uh, my family lifestyle. So I got the bug. A good friend of mine told me I should open a recruiting agency instead of working for one. So I dove in and fortunately hired some really good people to help me along the way. Because I've, in my role as a consultant, I've had a couple people over the past number of years ask me to help them recruit somebody. I've done it twice. And for the listeners, let me tell you something. It is hard work. It is not easy to do recruiting, tracking people down, getting all the appointments set up. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for people in the executive search, the recruiting business, uh, for the effort that they put into it to get companies qualified candidates. It's even harder these days because it's the reverse. We're in such a candidate driven market uh, that there's a lot more uh, companies looking for people uh, than there ever has been in the past. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a challenging time now, but it's, the cool thing about it, Ted, is it kind of undulates between candidate driven and client driven marketplaces. We've been through three business cycles now, so we know how to, to pivot depending on what the market is doing. Okay. And I did indicate uh, to the listeners that 
you know, you guys are a broad-based um, search firm. You don't specialize in sales like so many firms do, but you're really trying to help a company out with a lot of its positions and really taking a strategic role. Um, what positions and specialties do you recruit for? Why don't you just give people an example so they can understand the breadth of what you do? I'll let Chris take that one. Okay. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, so, Ted, I think anything, um, in simple terms, anything that requires strategic execution at an executive level uh, in a medical device company, regardless of the function. Um, so I would say for a long time, uh, one of the only verticals we didn't touch when we look at the whole spectrum between commercial sales, marketing, strategic accounts, medical education, operations, engineering, was finance and, and human resources. And over the last two years, we've taken that on because as an extension of a lot of our clients, you know, that's, if not, you know, a critical component on the execution piece if they're going to go IPO or acquisition or, or organic scale. Um, so I would say when we look at, you know, the executive spectrum, any function within that business is something that we operate quite well. I can tell you that the the verticals that um, that we we look to really segment in, um, they all have um, some symmetrical business challenges over the lifespan of their organization. And just knowing that early commercial is really a, a nice sweet spot, whether that's pre-approval into an A round or a B round up to $100, $150 million, they at some point will outlive uh, their life cycle with us. But I think our business strategy is set up in a way that we are with them through the journey until we've been outlived, but it's intentionally set so, if that makes sense. You know, I'd like to emphasize to the listeners that when um, when I went and looked at your website and sort of read through how you articulate what you're trying to do for uh, your clients, it's very obvious that you take a real serious role in um, in a client and what they're trying to do as they try to grow as you're as you're explaining Chris you're like almost like an extension of their human resources organization so you're sitting down at the strategic level correct and sitting there saying where are you going to be how are you going to hit your milestones and what kind of people do you have to have on board and you know so what does that mean we need to be doing for you am I correct that's 100 right Ted and, and it's to the point where you know it's time to sign the NDA let's have a real candid conversation. Um, because I think it becomes, to your point, as an extension of, of our partners, you know, how do we solve complex businesses and what perspective can we bring to the table that they don't have? You know, when, when, we, when we talk about it, no matter how seasoned the, the CEO or the board is, um, you know, cumulatively, we will have more interviewing experience in a year than most people do have in a lifetime at the executive level. So I think it's leveraging that intelligence and that data from real-time marketplaces and being able to translate that into real business needs and creative solutions, uh, you know, for some of our clients. So I, I think that's a, a probably a, a somewhat of a eloquent way to, to you know position that. And if sure. I can add to that, the Please. other thing that we do is we really get embedded with our clients. I have a client right now we're placing uh, four board seats for. I'm introducing them to some uh, potential strategic partners. I'm helping them put together like a reimbursement analyst and some other folks. So we. We really partner with our folks. And by partner, sometimes we'll take an equity position in some of our companies. We oh. love the early stage companies, uh, particularly if we have a bird's eye view of what they do. 
understanding the technology. Uh, so we we really get in really deep and you know provide all kinds of extra information as a value add, which just you know I think is a something that startup and early stage and transitioning companies really need, not so much the big ones. Right, exactly. That's pretty cool. And I can tell the listeners that it is rare for a company to uh, be so involved with their client that they can even consider taking an equity position. There are very few uh, upper level recruiting firms that do that. And I don't think the big boys do it at all, like a corn ferry or something like that. They should. <laughs> yeah, they should. But a specialty uh, organization like yourself can. And just to give people an idea as to how large you are, how many, I think you're up to what, 15, 17 total Wait. employees? With all of our researchers, we're probably at 16 or so okay. now. We just added our first new employee uh, just about a week and a half ago, uh, Luis Gutierrez, uh, who has a healthcare background as well. So we've got a, and the, the best part is, it's like family here. If you walked in my office, uh, we really do, we work together. In fact, uh, Chris and I played golf or tried to with Sean Wilcox <laughs> this past Sunday. He smoked us. I cheated. Uh, so we, we really do have a great uh, culture here. And I think the tenure is, is indicative of that. And I think the benefit to our clients and candidates is the continuity. So they're talking to the same person when they're early in their career, mid in their career, and hopefully when they get to the executive ranks as well. Exactly. Well, that's awesome. I, th I think we have a really good understanding. And I just think it's important that listeners understand exactly what kind of firm you are. Because so many people, especially in, in sales and marketing, are used to, um, you know, firms that just do really quick hires for a sales force or something like that. And uh, they're not, they're not dealing with recruiting organizations that really get involved in the company at the strategic level, even early on, like you said, pre-commercial. Uh, that's very important. So very good. We got that clear. Now let's talk about what the med tech job market is like now and how much it's changed. Because when you and I last talked, it just you just amazed me with some of the stuff you said, Paula. So let's let's talk about what has been happening in the market. And I do we have a we do have one comment here from Rich. Yeah, we'll get to that, Rich. We'll get to international opportunities with US clients. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Um, so talk about what's the, what are the major changes? What have you seen happening? Chris, I'll let you start. Sure, sure. Yeah, and Paula, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll volley back and forth. But um, candidate-driven market, Ted, is probably the best summary for right now. Um, I'll give you a real-world example. Uh, we had a a, 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 a director-level uh, position in marketing uh, with one of our clients, and and the candidate selected at the five-yard line had. Uh, one offer that uh, she had declined and she had four alternative offers in hand. So that's how competitive the talent market is. And that's for every function, right? It's not just sales. It's not just marketing. And, and the best reference I can give is it's been very much so like the housing market. When we, when we look at, you know, what happened in 19 into early 2020, I think, you know, things were humming along and we had these larger strat plans set up for 2020. Everyone hit pause. And then in 2021, everyone hit unpause. So now it's a supply and demand issue, and we're seeing the talent be, you know, you know, limited in supply and in uh, high demand. Okay. And then another thing that Paul had made a comment. You you'd made a comment about change in the last 18 months. 
being more than you had seen in the last 30 years. Oh my goodness. Uh, what, are, what are some of those changes? Well, a couple of things. For the first time, we actually hired people at the executive level, president above, uh, with companies where they never met in person. Wow. Uh, in fact, I was at HRS, the Heart Rhythm Society, probably two months ago, and the president that we placed met his boss for the first time. Wow. Uh, so that's happening more. We did a, a whole sales force that was all virtual. Uh, Zoom interviews, people have got really comfortable with, uh, with Zoom, I think, or any type of video interviewing. That is a dynamic I did not predict uh, and still kind of amazes me that that's now that happening now. I think the other thing is uh, because employees and, and candidates are looking for either you know, work-life balance, more money, and oftentimes both, uh, we're seeing that companies are getting better at deciding what they want and pulling the trigger oftentimes when they find the right person. In the past, it'd be, okay, let's get six people and we'll bring them all in. There'll be two interviews. Now, Ted, companies that are not being uh, not adjusting to the speed to hire are losing candidates. Uh, if someone is is coming up on the market and or we call them and they're passive, which means they're not looking for an active opportunity, and all of a sudden we're calling them, nine times out of 10, they go, oh, well, that was easy. Maybe I should look outside the box. That's a dynamic that we haven't seen since probably the, the mid-2006-7 range. Uh, so that's new. And I think technology has really been not just you know the video interviewing, uh, but I think technology, people have got to have a grasp on using technology um, in their business, whether it's sales or operations or marketing or R&D, uh, all these collaborative tools uh, that companies are using now. Uh, I think the folks that didn't grow up in that uh, era, which would include me, uh, we've got to be really careful that we keep updated on our technology. Uh, so those are some trends I'm seeing. Salaries are just going through the roof, particularly in some key areas. Uh, strong commercial leaders always in demand. But we're seeing some of the back office things. Regulatory is huge. Quality is huge. Uh, operations, supply chain, my goodness, is just uh, distribution. All those areas are also incredibly strong. Uh, and salaries, I, I pulled a salary survey the other day for a company in April, pulled it again a few days ago, and the salary had gone up 13%. The average salary empirically had gone up in just five or six months. Wow. So those are, those are big mega trends that are happening. Other trends that are happening is how, and remember we work primarily with early stage startup and transition companies, is how companies are being funded. We're seeing a ton of crowdsourcing, uh, uh, mimic innovative technologies, and mimic is spelled M-E-M-I-C, uh, did a, a crowdsourcing, basically, you know, investors, little investors putting in as little $250, and they raised 10 or $12 million, turned around and did a SPAC for, I believe, close to $300 million, uh, you know, just a couple of months later. Uh, monogram, bioscience, or monogram orthopedics, rather, same thing on a platform called uh, Start Engine did the same thing. They had a, I want to say 10 or $12 million, $10 million raise or so. And they now have a valuation of $90 million. And finally, a uh, little company that we work with, Synovia, spelled S-C-I-N-O-V-I-A, which makes a fabulous contactless, a system which helps surgeons assess blood flow during critical surgeries like open heart, breast reconstruction. Um, they're going on Start Engine in about three or four weeks. Uh, so I think that the point is when you have these dynamic companies 
who are doing innovative things, not just with the technology, but with their funding and how they're hiring people. Candidates really need to be aware of that, particularly in the upper levels. Um, you know, it's, it's not where you wait, you bring the company up, you do an IPO. I mean, there's just all these new funding mechanisms which are triggering, triggering important hires and new technology is brought to bear to help patients. Those are all new in the last last couple of years. Although SPACs is a re, uh, is a, a redo of an old concept, but uh, it's just another way to get to an IPO. Right. That's yeah. I've, I've, ever since you mentioned it to me several weeks ago, I've I've actually been looking at that a little bit more. It is an amazing phenomena. So the high demand that Chris was talking about a few minutes ago has resulted in the old supply demand issue, which is, you know, the and the supply being a little bit stiff, then the, the price of the, the resource goes up and the resource being human beings. So as, as you said, Paul, the, price, the, the salaries have gone up quite a bit in a lot of key positions. But going back to the point that you made about technology, digital, a, a lot of these, a lot of the hiring process is being done uh, virtually, if not the complete hiring process. Maybe now that cross our fingers, we get hold, uh, you know, get control of Delta. You know, maybe some of the hiring process for some of these advanced positions will, uh, you know, start to become have at least more components that are face to face. But still, a lot of it's virtual. How do you coach candidates to really be prepared virtually, to be able to to optimize their interview process on the in the virtual way, and you you know utilize these technologies. Well, we've got quite a few resources on our website, which I'll send you the link, Ted, to put on this uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, but we we have, I believe, probably 75 different white papers or, or uh, helps for candidates to prepare, including how to prepare for a, a, you know, a Zoom in, a interview, uh, how to prepare for a panel interview. So a lot of it is preparation. One thing that we spend is about as much time on as anything is preparing candidates. Uh, I can't tell you the last time we set a candidate and the uh, the client said, oh, they weren't a fit or they weren't prepared. We coach and certainly overcoach sometimes, someone would say, uh, to really prepare people. And on the, the technology piece, it's really rele relevant to whatever position that they're going for. It's a salesperson. We want to know, can they do, they do Salesforce? Are they custom to CRMs? Uh, you know, a lot of companies are tracking and monitoring uh, candidates, not, not in a bad way, but to kind of help them with their productivity. So we kind of coach them around that. And then we also coach our clients. Uh, there's some brilliant people out there with a lot more letters after their name than mine that started companies, but they just, the interviewing is just not something that comes innately. So we've done group interview uh, conferences for, for sales teams and for executive teams in the past. It's a, uh, it's time consuming, but our, our hire ratio is, it's really, really high. And for our candidates, I think they feel like we've, we've given them uh, you know, it's, it's up to them once we get them to the interview, but we do a whole lot of preparation in advance. Yeah, it's really, that's really, really good to know. And uh, I think another thing that you and I might have talked about it, and it, it might have been some stuff that I've seen elsewhere, as you know, people generally talk about the the demand, you know, in hiring for med tech is the experience people had during. COVID uh, with their employers uh, and then how that has affected some of their decision-making as they look to new jobs, if, if they're being, if they're being interviewed or if they're, if they're are, if they are looking for a new opportunity, 
Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, Chris? Maybe. Sure, Ted. Yeah, I, I think I think if you are assigned a numerical value and a human element is taken out, if you're a very financially uh, run company, uh, frankly, it didn't feel very great just to say, "Hey, you're you're one of one thousand. I'll see you later," uh, or furlough. So I think I think there's a, a repetitious story of of candidates in terms of our conversations that we've had and it's defining culture right what is their culture and one of the questions that we're seeing candidates ask how did they handle covid right Seriously. or how are they handling currently yeah i mean yeah. really like how did they handle it did they lay off 10 percent of the workforce did they furlough everybody uh because no one's got a crystal ball but i i think we saw the preference for stability um, you know, increased tremendously. And, and a byproduct of that was also how are they funded? You know, what's their capital look like? Uh, what's the private equity group? Who's the VC behind them? And then spending time even, you know, on the interweb, which is doing some diligence on, are they a buy and hold? Are they reinvest? You know, what does the funding structure look like? What are their aspirations? Is this a two-year build and flip? Is this a five-year build a home? Uh, and then elevate my career and, and move from there. So I think we saw the priority shift a little bit and you, know, you have a, a degree of, I don't want to say skepticism because I think that word is too strong, but, but um, you know, intelligence gathering to determine what, you know, what the response was for organizations through 2019 and how they're responding now. Okay. That's very, very interesting. And another thing, like when we talk about how candidates have changed, like I have a, a number of bullets. So like we just talked about, I guess what we could call the COVID effect effect. And then, and that might then turn into the benefits, you know, what's best for the family work-life balance. So I guess a lot of these things are coming to the fore as people have a little bit more control and a little bit more leverage over the jobs. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Candidates are, are getting better at articulating what it is. It's important to them. Uh, We ask one question just about every time it's like, what are you looking for in your next opportunity that you don't have now? It's a very, very telling question. So I encourage candidates to have an answer for that. And it's, it's, it's interesting where people jump in. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's a place of belonging. I, I, I've been working at home for you know, 18 months and I, I want to communicate with people again. Um, sometimes it's opportunity. Sometimes it's equity. It, it really varies. But I think that value proposition uh, is not generational and it's not title specific. It's individual specific. And we really try to listen to that and try to marry someone's aspirations and goals to the corporate culture. We have a variety of different corporate cultures. We have very family oriented. We have very uh, companies that are very linear in terms of trying to drive the dollars. We have companies that are sprinting towards an IPO or an exit. And those are all, and then we have some sustaining companies that are, you know, are just a great you know, place to work, but they're not spiky. Some people enjoy those undulations in the, uh, the pace of a company and other people prefer a little bit more of stability from a, from a work standpoint. So I think it's really listening to what your company is saying they're looking for and what clients and candidates are saying that they're, that they're looking for. And I would encourage anyone listening is on the candidate side to put, you know, write down what those are. And on the client side, Two things. One is make sure your mission statement is updated and real in this environment we're in. And two, in fact, this happened today, uh, where there was a, a we had a non-alignment of the the leadership and to the mid-level executives. So 
One was saying one thing, one was saying another, and the candidate felt very confused. So make sure that your messaging to potential candidates is clear and that's realistic and that everybody knows and buys into what it is. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you do have these different companies that have their cultures and part of it is based on what their particular objectives are at the moment. But do you find yourself coaching leadership that might have been used to an environment of three years ago or four years ago where they could just be the hard charger and if if they had an opportunity, well, you can like it or leave it kind of thing. And, and now they don't have as many choices. Uh, are you coaching people that you're going to have to change the way you work with? If you want this particular candidate, you're going to have to respect these particular personal things that they want. I mean, how do you do that? Well, we, we, in fact, uh, the last conversation I had before jumping on this call was to that very effect. Um, and, you know, we, we visit our clients, not as much during the COVID, but, you know, we'll call for a, you know, all hands executive team meeting. And I generally will interview a couple of the exec- executives individually to, to get what the thoughts are without the group. And then I'll very confidentially amalgamate all those uh, different various opinions of the corporate culture. And we come working strongly with HR, if they've got one, uh, we come to some type of conclusion on this is the, the crux of who we are as a, as a company and this is our mission. So yeah, it's a, it's a, lot, of, a lot of hand-holding, but that's, that's why we love what we do. Uh, so, and Chris was at a client site not too long ago doing the exact same thing. So, and people are really embracive of trying to do most companies of trying to, uh, put the right foot forward. And we also tell folks, if it's a company, that has got a, a mixed reputation, maybe they've got new leadership, anything that you hear on some of those silly sites that are like Glassdoor, and I thought that it's silly, but, uh, there's another one, Cafe Farm. I said, don't even look on that. That's 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 not beneficial at all. But all the information is, is trailing indicators. And insightful, strong, resourceful leadership can really change a company culture in about 18 months. So if someone's looking to hitch their star to someone that's got a company or an executive or that's got potential, you've got to look beyond what some old reviews may be saying to what the messaging is going forward. Right. And I know when I asked that question, a big smile came to Chris's face. I don't know if you had something you wanted to say there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny. We, we, when, we, when we work with the executive search and, and you ask, I guess, the, the most pronounced response of, you know, what's been, you know, what has made you successful, right? You know, you're a CEO, you know, what, what has gotten you there? Eight times out of 10, it's like I hire the right people, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the, the commonality and response of, of recruiting attracting, retaining, and building the right teams is, is almost like eight out of 10 every time you talk to any member of C-suite and say, okay, what, what got you here? And it's always the people, right? That's good empathetic leadership uh, uh, among a number of traits, but it's also an interesting sign of the times because you know, you're looking at companies that, that, that are, are offering remote work, right? Or, or saying, okay, I know you were in the office as a you know, a marketing manager five days a week, but, you know, you can be anywhere in the world as long as we are looking at end results and, and measured results and the end goal. And I think that's opened up an entirely new category of talent acquisition, which is you are now, if you are a fully on-site company, competing against talent that otherwise, you know, could be open to remote and willing to be able to be remote and maybe the best person for the role or the best possible fit if they're willing up to you know go to the office you know one to two weeks a month of of some capacity but live within a two hour 
airshot flight. Um, so it, it's absolutely, you know, not figured out at this point, but to the, to the reference on coaching, it's something that we need to be aware of as a, as it a, a quantifiable trend. You know, if you've got company A and company B, this is, you know, be in, you know, one week a month and you've got company B that might be paying 10% more, but you've got to be in the office. We're seeing candidates defer to, wow, I don't have to move. I don't have to move my families, my significant other. Um, you know, what's, what's, you know, what's $20,000 in the grand scheme of things if I can get the experience and not have to relocate. So that's the competitive landscape of talent right now. Okay. So one of the things we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, Paulo, that you brought up was the amount of business. So we're going to, we're going to get close to your question here, Rich, was the amount of business that you guys did overseas with like European companies and such. And I think you, the number you gave me was 20 to 30% of your past businesses overseas. What happened to that during COVID and where do you, and what is happening now as we, again, fingers crossed, we're getting COVID under control. Well, specifically our, our business really dried up uh, internationally uh, with the exception. I think we did well, maybe two or three uh, searches last year internationally. And by internationally, that could be that we're working for companies outside the U.S. to bring people here. And then conversely, U.S.-based or North American-based uh, companies that we place people uh, outside the U.S. And I think with COVID and all the travel restrictions that just didn't happen, we have a search right now, a C-level search that is predicated on uh, the board meeting this executive. And the question is, when can they get here? Because we've got travel restrictions in place. Um, and I see that, unfortunately, for uh, a little bit more, probably through first quarter, um, because certainly some of the visas and some of the, until we've got a system that works globally, I'm afraid that's going to be more difficult. However, if someone's got a technical expertise or a particular expertise in operations, engineering, product development, we are seeing companies opening up to people working remotely. And if you've got a phone line and a uh, internet connection, then you could you could do that. So I, that's not a trend I'm seeing yet. It's one that I'm anticipating first quarter where international folks will, in fact, be able to work for U.S.-based companies or North American-based companies. We have a lot of Canada uh, companies, so I keep saying, uh, so say North America. Sure, sure. Yeah, I work um, with a gentleman out of St. Petersburg, Russia, and the the travel restrictions they they are a worldwide distribution or a representation company that sets up distribution and and the travel restrictions definitely have forced them to be even more virtual than they ever were but it is it is a challenge because these companies like another company I'm starting to work with is out of Lyon France and um, they have me working with a U.S. company but you know, they do need to have this interaction. They do have the, these requirements to hire people in the United States and, and um, yet they can't travel. So it is a challenge. And it, I think it's going to be for a little bit longer as well. So. Yeah. 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 We had a, we had a, a client from um, uh, Munich, Germany, and, and we were right at the five yard line and said, okay, great. Let's, uh, let's get the uh, trip over and we'll, we'll call it a day. And, and it, that was a year and eight months ago. Um, so wow. we're, uh, you know, and they still need someone here domestically. Um, so I think it's something that we hope. And in th those particular cases, um, they've not been willing to pull the trigger on a total virtual interaction. I take it. 
That's correct, right? And yeah. that depends on the on the organization, the client organization, right? Uh, right. You know, some some are apt, some are not apt. Right. And no offense to Arnie from the Netherlands, but that to me that's very very European, and it is actually something that's to be respected and appreciated um, uh, about the way that they pursue their businesses and manage their people. There's some interesting things there. Okay, so travel in general is being reduced. Do you think some of these companies that you're working with? Do you think they're being successful in the virtual world? Have, have they learned to adapt? Have they taken the steps necessary? Well, you want to take that one? Yeah. So I think they have to an extent. It depends on the company. We work with a lot of SaaS companies, a lot of high-tech AI, a lot of data-driven companies. I think they've done probably a better job in general than our traditional uh, capital equipment or uh, implant where it's, a, it's a, something that you can put in your hands. Right. So it's, it really depends on the sector that you're in. But, you know, one of the, the trends Ted, you and I talked about was, uh, you know, where where's recruiting going to be? Where's the med tech space going to be? And we're seeing in every conference that we go to, uh, AI, huge, huge, huge. Um, but also the monetization of the data, the aggregation of monetization of the data. So even if you're interviewing for a sales rep or regional sales manager job uh, for a cardiovascular company, I think to be aware of what's what's coming in trends is going to be super important. Um, you know, and we're also seeing, uh, you know, software, software driven companies can move a lot of times more nimbly. So as candidates are considering their, their career, uh, looking for, for companies that have a future. So, you know, even the, the hip and knee companies right now are absolutely addressing and tackling sensing technologies and, and data, uh, you know, what to do with the data. So I think that we're going to have an incredible uh, next five years of innovation in med tech. Uh, I don't know it'll be necessarily in uh, an implant or a piece of capital equipment as it will be in the, uh, the software and the AI that's driving behind that. And candidates need to be aware of that as they're looking at opportunities. I would absolutely research the company to see where they're headed. Look at their patents. Uh, you know, look where their strategic alliances are. And all this is available on the internet. Uh, we have a resource on our website, which I'll, I'll link to you, Ted. Uh, it's basically, it's called How to Research Medical Advice Companies. Uh, and it's just a whole lot of, of, you know, just nuggets of people to really have an understanding. So when someone, uh, interviewer says, hey, what do you know about my company? Then it's not just the first page of Google. So candidate preparation, again, is, is critical, as is client preparation at this point. Oh, that's great. And I, in the show notes, I'll put these links. And, and in this particular case, like this resource that you just mentioned, instead of just making it a link to your website, I'll put a link directly to that to that particular page or resource. So that's really great. Let's let's go to Rich's question. So um, he says, "Thank you for taking time to share your insights today. At some point, I'd love to hear from either Paula or Chris." on how international opportunities with your U.S. clients has changed over the last five years or so, and has there been a significant shift in mix for opportunities you see in international markets, uh, being that you are there, also well-positioned as, you know, as a hub, like, like okay, for Florida, it's a great hub for, um, he's, saying, he's using the term LATAM, L-A-T-A-M, um, so, which means Latin America, but. You, a little response, Chris, you want to start with that? Sure. I, I think we, um, I guess we've got two arms, right? Commercial distribution, uh, marketing and, and, you know, manufacturing operations, supply chain. 
I guess we'll speak to the last few. Uh, we're seeing companies opt for strong strategic supply relationships. If they're larger, you can look at the product development lifecycle in terms of a private label opportunity, accelerate the R&D pipeline a little bit quicker. That's been a mix of both domestic and international, but I think it's something to keep an eye on is you know how strong or how how you see some of the trends in the contract manufacturing companies, the private label companies or the white box companies, uh, because we've seen those pick up a little bit more over the last couple of years. And, and that's both international coming, we'll call domestic United States, North America on, on manufacturing operations. And then in terms of the distribution side, I would say to Paula's point, we we really have not done it. Was, it was a lot of the international search, whether it's Latin, APAC, or EU. Um, there was you know, there was a, a bit of a pause. You know, at least I, I don't think it was lack of need. It just depends on regionally each market because each market is very different. You know, whether it's regulatory bodies or otherwise. So I, I think where we see it going, or has there been a mix? I would say there's still absolutely need on international and even potentially developing markets, but I think it's been a a short-term pause. We hope that picks up pretty heavily going into 2022 and 2023, but it's speculation at this point. And I'll add to to that. So next next year, we'll probably go to at least three, if not four international conferences where we go back to Medica. I love the MedTech Summit in Dublin. We're looking at Arab Health and maybe uh, Euro PCR or what, one of those those type of shows. So, I, and if anybody is, is internationally listening and is going to any of those shows, I always wear a hat uh, to conferences, so I'm easy to find. Uh, so, if you see a, a gal in a hat, that's probably me. But I think that that you know certainly the international market, just as we've had the pinup demand here domestically in North America, I gotta believe that that's going to start translating uh, on, you know, around the world before too long, uh, you know, hopefully it will. So I appreciate the question. Right, absolutely. So we've we've covered a lot of ground. What have I not asked you that I should have asked you? <laughs> or what, what do you think I've missed? That's my favorite uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd just like to throw out a couple of uh, uh, kind of macro concepts for candidates and for clients. So for Please. candidates first, like, the market is really, really strong. Uh, but be sure that you've got a clear path of what you're, what it is you're looking for financially, culturally, you know, a mentor, you know, right now the, uh, in fact, I pulled up the BLS numbers uh, last year, this time, the unemployment rate for college ed- in, the, in, in the United States for college educated people over the age of 25 was 5.3%. Last month, it was 2.8%, which is, which is full employment. Wow. So we literally had just this huge, you know, there's just not enough people to do the jobs. So point is, decide what you want. Again, on the, the link that I'll send you, Ted, there's a couple of good exercises for people to do that. We don't do career counseling here overtly. Sometimes it creeps into conversations as we're getting to know uh, candidates. Uh, but also do your research. Uh, even though it's a candidate-driven market right now, in terms of negotiating salary and benefits and title, that's all going to be dependent on your past experience for the most part. But there's about a 10, 15% component in there in how you present. And 
I would, again, not first page of Google. I'd read an annual report if they've got one. If they're a, a company like the companies I've mentioned on Start Engine, like Synovia, uh, I would absolutely look at anything that you can find. There's some great resources for researching companies as well. And that that might make the difference between a you know a 5 to 15% salary increase for you. Um, and I think, too, if you're when you're interviewing, whether it's uh, on Zoom or in person or by phone, have the list of questions that you want to ask because employees are getting better at listening to be able to fit what the candidate candidate need is. On the client side, I can't emphasize this enough. We get in and out of searches generally in about 45 days. That's from the day we first talked to the hire. Uh, the, The gating factor for that, frankly, is everyone is so busy these days. My team is working late at night, six days a week, just to keep up with demand. That's why we've had to turn down so many searches. But for clients, Decide what good looks like. And when someone brings it to you, whether it's the first resume or the fifth, then absolutely be able to pull the trigger. Uh, It's really, uh, candidates get a little bit annoyed if the process takes so long because it's like, am I not the one? Can they not make a decision? Uh, Am I not special enough? And I understand that. So clients, you know, companies absolutely decide what your must-haves are, what your nice-to-haves, and be able to pull the trigger. That means having an offer letter ready to go with blank. That means having the salary absolutely specked out and where the parameters are around that. And then finally, as I mentioned before, make sure the entire team from the executive level to uh, the receptionist at the front desk knows what the mission is and has a a sense of the face that the uh, company wants them to present to to the candidate. Uh, The disconnect confuses people these days. Um, and then I think finally, I, Ted, I mentioned this to you, we are regretfully having to turn down searches where companies aren't paying at least 75% of market. And we prefer 90%, but 75%, if they've got something else compelling, the technology or there's equity or you know something else, uh, work at home, we'll take those. And we're not alone. Every single recruiting company owner I talk to, we're all calling each other saying, we're turning this down. Do you have capacity? And overwhelmingly, the answer is no. Um, so uh, you know, make sure you're paying enough money and be able to make the decision once you find the perfect or the near perfect candidate. So that's my spiel to, to, to companies because uh, both sides want to win win the candidates and the companies. And of course, we do too. But it's, it's got to be the right formula right now. There's not going to be a whole lot of can't really mess with the formula right now. Speed to hire, know what you want on both sides. So I, I think that the whole concept of turning a recruiting opportunity down is really powerful. And I think this is really important for listeners. And I look at it a couple ways, and I'll see if I can remember to cycle back to that. But Chris, could you expand on that? A little bit what sure. what is involved in turning you know what are the elements of turning a, a prospective client down right right well i think it, it comes down to the the wish list and in the end goal ted and, and sometimes if the alignment isn't necessarily there for organizational strategy which is hey we want someone to do these 10 things you know but we'll pay them a hundred thousand dollars and we know the people that do all of those 10 things are are at at an average at 50 percentile, say at two hundred thousand um, dollars, you know, or or there's a you know we'll offer the uh, the equatable amount of financial value based on the objectives or what we can hire this person for to solve for us, 
but you know they're already half remote or blended schedule and we want them to pick up and move their family um so i think it's really it's it's a cumulative nature of of the assessment it's not an easy you know it's just about the money because that's not how candidates select opportunities that's not how people hire people but i think it is an aggregate of all of the factors that would de- decide or define individuals motives being top talent to make a change. And if you're missing five out of 10 things, um, you know, it, it's almost a disservice to, to make the impression that, Hey, this is going to be done in 45 days. The reality of it is this may go on for six months and we might talk to a thousand people or 2000 people about something like this as a wild example. Why don't we save you know, some time and, and look at prioritizing or building this down into something that's a little bit more pragmatic for what the market is telling us at this point. So that way it becomes a win-win. And then it comes down to the executive, you know, the executive team's flexibility upon that. So if we can pare this down and, and make it more, um, I guess, akin to what we're seeing in the market right now, uh, then let's jump in, right? You know, the, the executive team is very flexible. They're, they're realistic on, on where the market goes. Uh, but it's not with, uh, you know, uh, just an easy flip of the switch, say yes or no. I mean, it's it, there's some diligence behind us saying yes or no, because we want to make sure it's a win-win for everybody. Um, so it's that cumulative. Yeah. And I uh, uh, one thing for the attendees, if you have any other questions you want to ask, throw them in the chat because we're coming up uh, on the hour here in, in about 10 minutes. But I guess one of the things that I would say, just from the comments both of you have made, you know, about what candidates should be thinking about, what clients should be thinking about, the idea that you can turn, you know, recruiting uh, opportunities down because the client is unrealistic is, I don't know that I'd want to go work for a firm where the client was so unrealistic. And then if they came back and said, okay, we'll pay more, is there, is it possible that there, that the candidate would be confronted with bitterness later on or any other kind of obstacles if they went to work for such a company? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on both sides. So um, we tell folks, they said, well, let's let's see if we can't get somebody for X amount of dollars. If not, we'll 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 you know, we'll raise it. Well, during early COVID, we would consider that because it was very uncertain times. But now, my goodness, if I call someone and say, hey, Ted, job's going to pay. I know how much you're worth, Ted. Six hundred thousand dollars on a base, uh, and <laughs> yeah, then, that's know, right. <laughs> and then I and you say that's not enough, and I, I call you back, you know, a month later, and say we're going to go up to eight. It's it really sours the reputation of, of the, the client company, oftentimes, especially where we are now. Now, when we're in a client-driven market, totally different situation. Right. But uh, but I think that you know, set what you can pay, and frankly, one other uh, client uh, tip. And I guess candidate tip too is we have been hiring people uh, at, at with more experience from you know this this oh I want a, a young up and comer we're not hearing that as much anymore um, I just placed a C level person uh, who was in in her late sixties uh, she told me she didn't look it uh, and the company was thrilled because she had been through several business cycles. Um, you think about Ted, you and I have been around the block a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, th- th- yeah, we've been through recessions. We've been through boom. We've been through tragedy, 9-11. We've been through pandemics. We've had all these different business cycles. And the leaders that are prepared for what may happen are the ones that definitively can lead uh, really any size organization, but particularly startups and candidates. If you've got change management, 
you know, anybody that has lived and worked in the last 18 months has had some type of change management. I would highlight that on, on your resume uh, because people, I'm getting calls right now. It's like, gosh, you know, what's the next shooter drop? Is it going to be another pandemic? Are we going to have a world event that might change things? So if you could be prepared and be insightful and also, you know, to companies, you know, some of the folks, again, the, the back office folks are becoming much more critical risk management. We're seeing a, an uptick in things like that. Uh, market access, things that are like, okay, what do we do if, if the market, if the payers shift? Um, so I think that the last 18 months, as horrible as they were in, in you know, in, uh, human tragedy, uh, I think will make the industry a, a better place long term because a lot of innovation took place in basements on a Saturday with someone living on a Zoom call because they couldn't go anywhere. Uh, so I'm incredibly optimistic. Uh, first of all, that's how I'm wired. But secondly, because I think it's it's going to be, uh, I think the next five years, we are going to have uh, some incredible some incredible innovation in our industry. Yeah, I would say that if anybody needed a dose of optimism, they could just get a blood transfusion from Paula. You'd be <laughs> on your way. So, Chris, uh, same question sort of back to you. You know what? You know what did I miss? I think Paula did a great job on what candidates and clients should consider. But any additional thoughts that you have? Yeah, I think flexibility is is key, Ted. And 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 I say that in in context is it's let's let's look at you know what we what we're what we're trying to do with the business. And this is advice we're giving you know the, you know full C suite managers. What, what are we really trying to do? And and if there's a way to accomplish that goal, I mean, we're seeing a trend of results-based management. And, and I think that wasn't as escalated as, as it was with COVID because you have to rotate into results-based management. You're working from home, you know, you have to manage the results. And I think that is a that is a leadership trend that will will continue and I don't think is going anywhere, which is results-based management. So if we're hiring someone to do you know, these five things, as long as they're doing these five things, uh, you know, can we, can we define this as a success? Right. And obviously there's, there's, there's huge variations of that, you know, R and D, you need a lab, you need to do wares testing, you, you know, software development, you can likely do remote depending on the type of coding you're doing, or, you know, depending on the function, of course. But I think, I think that degree of flexibility and really having a good litmus test of what good looks like from an organizational perspective, especially when, to Paula's point, everyone's leading through change management and, and no one's got a crystal ball has been, I think we've seen some of the better leaders, you know, have that degree of adaptability and flexibility to drive through challenging times and start thriving through, you know, kind of what we're saying right now. Okay. Okay. That's great. Well, we're um, on the verge of the hour here, and we don't have any more questions. One thing I, I just want to let you know, the listeners know, and the members of the MedTech Leaders community that are in attendance here today is that because you're a, a collaborator on a podcast, the, the organization becomes um, a free member of the MedTech Leaders community. Yeah. So, so I will you. send you guys a couple links but the benefit that the community gets is that if you have somebody at um, Legacy, you know, keeping tabs on the community and any communication, you know, you might have people reaching out to you or whatever for advice or, you know, to they might have a, a job for you. They may need to do a search, something like that. Right. But uh, it's a small community, but it's growing. So yeah. I, I just like to say thank you both. This has really been uh, quite 
you know, informative. It really has given us a great summary of what the job market looks like in med tech and a lot of great advice for both the candidates and the clients. Right. It's a pleasure, Ted. I hope to see you in person one day soon. I know, exactly. And Chris, it's a real pleasure to meet you for the first time. So, Likewise. you know, continued uh, great luck down there with the uh, Legacy Med Search team. You guys have an awesome reputation. You know, keep knocking it out of the park and helping companies succeed. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks again. Well, we just learned that it is a very different employment market in med tech right now. Candidates, know what you want and be prepared to communicate that and your capabilities virtually. Employers, also know what you want and be prepared to learn how to select a candidate primarily with virtual tools. Of course, there are a lot of nuances to what sounds like a simple equation, as you heard from both Paula and Chris. When you understand the impact of these nuances, you can better appreciate the value of a talented executive search firm. By the way, I want to repeat the fact that guests and their companies never compensate me for being on the podcast. Soon, I may feature sponsors, However, if someone or their company is a guest, they cannot sponsor the same podcast they participate in. Thanks again for listening today. Now go win your week.